Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hello, and welcome to Mark My Words. This is Mark Homer. This is a, an open Q&A session. Um, we went out to our Facebook community, the Progressive Property Facebook community, and asked you guys what you would like answering. So I'm here to do that. So question number one is, hi, Mark, if you were starting out in property today, where would you start? Well, I probably wouldn't start in a much different place to, to where I did do. I mean, I'd I'd sort of can the overseas and off plan and, and new build and all that sort of stuff that you know, didn't didn't really work for me. Um, but I, I would probably get straight into buying good, solid, sort of terraced house, single let stock. Um, if it was around here in Peterborough, it would be the ex-council type locations. Um, try and keep it probably below 130,000. Try and keep the yields above six, six and a half percent. And I'd, I'd, I'd just start buying some of those to cut my teeth. Um, probably within five properties, I would move into roomlets. I'd do HMOs to try and increase the cash flow. Um, and then, you know, within another five of those, I'd probably move into doing commercial buildings and converting them into residential. So that would either be into apartments or into cluster flats, um, which, um, you know, I, I, I like doing because you can get really, really good cash flow, very high yields, uh, and you get to keep them. Uh, and that's at the core of what I believe in and, and what I like to do, I like to buy and then hold because, um, you know, when you sell, you've only then got to go and do the work all over again, pay a load of capital gains tax or corporation tax when you sell, stamp duty when you buy, uh, and then you've got to keep on working to sort of stay alive. Um, whereas uh, if you sort of build a, a really nice portfolio, yes, you, you know, you'll get less from the income than you will selling, but over the long term, it will just keep dropping in no matter what you do. And I think there's a lot of power in that. Okay, so question number two, what's your prediction for interest rates over the next two years? I think they're going to be relatively static. Um, you're probably going to see, uh, obviously, this is dependent on the, you know, the age old Brexit uh, and the uncertainty surrounding that and also um, around where um, the US is going and Europe um, and, and China as well. Um, Clearly, the, the world is starting to slow down. I did a video at, at Christmas about this. Uh, the, the, the yield curve, i.e. the amount of um, the, the return that you'll get on long-term bonds um, dipped to below the level you'll get on short-term bonds uh, around Christmas, um, which shows, you know, shows that a lot of investors think that the, the market's not going to be getting any better over the next sort of year or two. That's, that's the sort of global uh, economy. Um, and uh, clearly there's a slowdown in China, a slowdown in the US. Will that translate into a full-blown recession? Well, nobody knows. Um, I think the the likelihood is that it, it, it may be more of a slowdown rather than a, a full-blown recession at this point. Um, and then, of course, in the UK, you've got um, national localised issues um, of uncertainty around Brexit. People, Companies not investing as much and, and people not wanting to invest because they're worried about their jobs, even though unemployment is at a record low, uh, and they're, they're worried about um, what's going to happen um, post-Brexit. So I think at some point, 
um, that Brexit uncertainty is going to lift. Uh, and clearly that the fog will go away um, when there's some sort of deal done. Will that be at the end of March? I think it's probably quite unlikely the way things are looking at the moment. Will they kick the can down the road? I think that is quite likely. Um, I suspect they'll end up extending uh, because I, I guess a lot of the MPs are not going to vote for, for this deal. Um, I think the market has decided uh, and, and most big investors have decided that uh, a no deal is not actually going to happen. Um, it, it could still happen, but I, I just I think the, the likelihood is um, that um, the government will, will buckle uh, and, and probably extend, uh, which may be better for the economy anyway. Um, so what's going to happen to interest rates in that period? Well, you probably all that is it deals with the next year, doesn't it? Um, so I doubt you're going to see anything more than a quarter point, maybe half a point rise over the next year. Um, internationally, governments are trying to get interest rates back up again uh, with difficulty, especially in the UK. Obviously, the US is is a lot further ahead on their their sort of cycle uh, and, and, and their, their cycle of interest rate increases. Um, they're more into the 2% range, whereas we're at 0.75%. Um, but with all this coming up, um, you can't really see them going anywhere. Um, in the next sort of one to two year time frame, if this uncertainty uh, reduces, as it could do, and the market suddenly starts to go, uh, not that we haven't got economic growth, it's still about one and a half percent GDP is, is probably increasing by about that level. Um, but you will you will see this wall of money come back to the market when that lifts. We saw this in 2013, some 2012, 2013, after the last recession, lots of people have been sitting on their hands. Lots of companies had sort of put money in the bank, waiting to invest. As soon as they were sure what was going to happen, they deployed that money. And I think there's a lot of money out there waiting to be deployed um, right now, whether it's consumers, companies, uh, you know, or, or even foreigners, foreign direct investment internationally into the UK. Uh, I think that will start to roll. Um, so, you know, we, you know, beyond a year out, well, things could really start to, to, to pick up uh, depending on those factors. Uh, but I suspect in the next couple of years, uh, you know, rates aren't going to be above one and a half, two percent in terms of, of base rate. And um, out further from the, the two year time frame, Mark Carney, the, the governor of the Bank of England, says the new normal for UK uh, Bank of England base rate is about two and a half to three percent. Um, so that's where he's trying to get back to. Um, so you should really assume that, um, you know, beyond that time frame, that that is where we're going to get to. But whether we will or not, nobody knows. All those people that make make predictions, um, the vast majority, if not all of them, um, over the long term, sometimes they get it right initially, but over the long term, they're usually wrong. Um, and uh, I've just learned that Whilst you should keep an eye on this sort of stuff and, you know, you're obviously going to have a view, um, you know, you're taking out a variable rate mortgage or, or a fixed rate. I think it's better to try and control the things that you, you can actually control and have an effect over. So buy property that's very, very high, you know, cash flow and don't over leverage, um, maybe have some fixed rate mortgages in there. I think if you can control all that stuff or, or you know, focus on, on, on controlling it and keeping it. Um, in line then all these other vagaries like interest rates like GDP growth um, you know like what banks are going to do things you really can't predict and, and can't control well they should be okay as long as you've you've not sort of um, 
taking your eye off the ball and, and, and you're generating enough cash flow in your, your portfolio and you're preparing for these, these sort of downturns, which inevitably will come. We're going to have another sort of dirty, great recession. Um, I'd say we're, we're in the second half uh, of this cycle. Maybe we're sort of eight years in. The last cycle was 18 years. Will this cycle be 18 years? Definitely not. Um, it'll be a, a sort of different length, but I suspect we are in the second half of this uh, of this game. Um, so you, you could imagine in the next 10 years, a, another full-blown recession is pretty likely. So you, know, you should get ready for that. Um, it doesn't mean you want to stop investing. It just means you, you may be a bit, a bit lower and you're a bit more defensive, create a bit more cash flow. You want to keep a good chunk of cash back, A, to look after yourself when, when that happens, but B... And this is what I'm particularly interested in. I just want to go out shopping again because um, 2009, 10, 11, uh, you know, whilst it was difficult for lots of people, um, you know, and, th- and that's not a great thing. Um, there were a lot of commercial buildings that were very, very cheap um, and they've gone up a lot since the last recession. But I think that will all come round again um, and there's going to be some great opportunities um, for you to go out and, and purchase. Okay, so question number three. How did you know Rob Moore was going to be a good JV stroke business partner? Did you trust him completely from the start? What should I look for and how do you completely trust them? Well, I think it's a really good question um, and um, I get this question a lot um, and I think I've worked out the right answer over the years. So for me, I got to work with Rob uh, for at least six months before I went into business with him. And for me, that is the precursor. Um, yeah, there are lots of sort of, you know, models you can use, lots of spreadsheets and, you know, maybe this person's a star or maybe you're a deal maker or maybe, you know, you're an accumulator and maybe that works together. And that that's a good starting point. But I think you've got to get into um, working with a potential business partner. Usually they're not a friend. I've, I've seen that work uh, rarely. Um, I've never really had great um, sort of business, um, let's just say business partnerships with any of my friends. Um, I, I, I think you, you really need to pick your business partner on the basis that you guys are going to add value to each other, i.e., you know, Rob and I were opposites. He's, he's, he's a great salesman. He's a great marketeer. Um, you know, and he's brilliant at, at sort of, you know, building these teams and, and, and creating... Um, you know, some, creating some great leverage around that. Um, Rob's great at all the things that I'm not. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I love sort of buying property. I love analyzing deals, uh, you know, finance, economic stuff. Um, you know, sales and marketing really are not my bag. Um, so that worked really well. And I, th- I think if you, if you can find somebody like that who is, you know, a foil to, to sort of what you're good at, uh, I think, um, you know, I, I think that's a good starting point. Then you get to know them. Uh, I, I, you know, enter into some sort of maybe loose business arrangement with them. Uh, don't jump all in initially. Um, that's what Rob and I did. We rolled for sort of six months. When we started our business, we didn't pile a load of money in. Um, you know, we started with just a few hundred pounds. So the risk was pretty low, actually. And then we went out, we got investors uh, and uh, we started rolling it like that. I did put some money in to buy properties for Rob and myself, but then I, I remortgaged them out afterwards. Um, initially, 
I just sort of had, I was doing all the deals. I had all the control over that. Um, so that gave me confidence and we got to learn what each other was going to do, what we were good at. Um, and, um, you know, over a period of time that, you know, that, that, that sort of, you build confidence and you build trust. And I don't know, we're, what are we now? We started together sort of in, in business, uh, in progressive property at the end of 06, beginning of 07. Um, so, you know, if you work that out, we're sort of 12, 13 years in, um, which, um, which, which is clearly great and, it, and it's worked, but I've kissed a lot of frogs. Uh, to, to, to find Rob and I expect you may have to do the same that's the reality number four would you prefer ten buy to let properties producing two and a half thousand pounds profit or one SA unit producing two and a half thousand pound monthly profit okay I get it um, I think if it was just a clear binary choice like that I'd probably go with the ten buy to lets and I tell you why um I know it would be more or potentially more work or definitely more work to source them and, and set them up. But those 10 buy to lets, if they're worth, let's say, 120,000 each, you've got 1.2 million pounds worth of property. Let's say in 15 years time that doubles. Um, you know, you, you've therefore um, got equity of 1.1 million um, plus any equity you generated when you bought and refurbished and, and remortgaged in 15 years time so that's 1.1 million pounds worth of equity that you won't have um in the SA unit uh if you own the SA unit you know you you know you you own I don't know 150 grand flat maybe that's doubled and you'll have made 150 grand out the capital growth in that so I think it's a balance I think SA is great I think it's a quite a defensive strategy I think if there's you know issues like I was talking earlier on about interest rates go really high or there's a big recession or a big downturn I think, you know, if you're making two and a half grand a month out of one unit, um, that you're going to be all right. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter where interest rates go, I wouldn't have thought. Um, yeah, the bank may ask for the money back, but you, you on that basis, you can probably remortgage relatively easily. Um, so I think it's a balance. I think you need uh, properties which are going to, you need a good rump of, of, of you know, capital, you need to, to, to make sure you, that the value of your portfolio is a good number so that capital growth will have a good effect, um, you know, on, on your portfolio and, and make you a multimillionaire over time. Um, and then, you know, I think you need cash flow as well to look after today uh, and to protect you in the short term. Question number five. I want to learn the basics of business finance. Where should I start? Hmm. Good question. Um where should I start? I, I'm very much one for learning on the job. Um, so clearly I went through some sort of training processes. Um, we run multiple streams of property income. Rob and I have got quite a few books. Um, so if you have a look um, at Property Investing Secrets, that's a good book on you know financing property and how to source them and all that sort of stuff. I think once you've sort of cut your teeth, um, you've got the, the early building blocks, maybe that's Masterclass, I would get into doing your first deals. You, you need to get out there. You need to talk to loads of agents and to, to learn the, the fineries of, of business finance. I think you need to talk to a lot of banks and you need to start get lots of mortgages and you need to talk to lots of people who've got those mortgages because I think that is the reality. Um, you know, 
some of these books that I read um, are written by people who don't take out a lot of business finance uh, and they're quite theoretical. Um, you know, that, that doesn't just apply to, to that sort of sphere. It, it, you know, it's lots of books I read. So um, I think you need to learn from people who are actually doing it and do it yourself on the job because I think that's where the reality comes from. Number six, what is the best structure for a joint venture buy and hold to protect yourself and your creditworthiness if the other person turns out to be a problem? Hmm. Well, um, hmm. okay, so I think if we rewind a few questions back to sort of, you know, getting to know somebody dating them for a while before you get married to them. I think that's the first thing you need to do because you absolutely don't want to be anywhere near anyone who is going to affect your credit rating because you go and get mortgages, whether it's a limited company or, you know, joint personal mortgages, there is going to be a connection of financial association between the two of you. Uh, and that may be difficult to shake if the other person, you know, doesn't pay their mortgage or has some sort of other issue. So I think you need to get to know them over a period of time to work out what sort of person they are. Um, it might be an idea to ask them to print their credit record out from Experian. You can do the same and provide it to them or maybe use Noddle because that's free. Um, I think if you take out limited company mortgages, if they have CCJs, generally, this is not always the case, but generally, um, if they're not personal mortgages, um, I've noticed that you can become financially disassociated. And I've actually done it with Rob uh, because I, I thought for both our sakes, if anything ever happens, you know, I don't know, a utility supplier manages to put a CCJ on. I don't even know about it. Uh, not that we've got any of that at the moment, any of those sort of issues. But you never completely know. It is probably better not to be connected, um, you know, at, at, at the credit reference agencies, which are Experian, uh, Call Credit, um, and Equifax, if you if you go to those three um, and um, make sure you're disassociated, um, then, you know, I think that, that, that there's a lot of benefit in doing that. If you're buying in joint names, you can't do that. You're automatically associated. Or if you have a joint personal bank account, you're automatically associated. Um, but if you have a company bank account, your shareholders are directors of a company, uh, or you have company, limited company or LLP, borrowings, usually that does not financially associate you, even though you are um, shareholders and directors of a common limited company or an LLP. That's what I found. Number seven, what is the mistake you've made that's been your most valuable lesson? My God, I've made so many mistakes. Uh, clearly in the old days, it was not having enough control, not understanding what I was buying buying in areas I don't understand, buying lots of overseas, off-plan, new build. Um, in more recent years, God, I make mistakes all the time. Um, there's a, there must be a whole stack of stuff. Um, you're bringing the right people on and paying them well. Uh, I think you can sort of nickel and dime some things. I think when you're doing development projects, it's great to get great materials in and you know, get them for a very cheap price and go for non-branded stuff. Um, I think with certain tradesmen, yeah, you, you want to get them in cheap. When you get really good professionals or, you know, as you, as you scale up, 
you, you know, we've got an accountant that we use who is really expensive, but he really, really gets our tax bill down because he's clever. And, you know, instead of your sort of average accountant that just gets the, I don't know, junior accountant to file your tax, go through your tax return and file it, he is the owner of the, um, you know, of his practice. He goes through every single tax return himself and he works out how to structure everything, you know, legally and within the rules. He uses all the reliefs, unlike lots of the others. Um, so, you know, if you find the right people, you've got to pay them. Um, you know, I've got a great architect on a, on a project at the moment. He's charging, you know, over £100,000. You've got to pay him. But, you know, he's quick. Um, he's, you know, been really good at working out all the issues with fire and building regs. Uh, and he's got us, you know, a really efficient use of space. And um, so he's great. Um, I've got a great project manager. Um, I'm really happy to pay him because he takes a lot of issues away from me. He reduces my liability and he teaches me a load of stuff. Uh, and, you know, uh, over a period of time, I, I've learned that he's basically probably reduced my professional bill on a project that I'm doing at the moment by, by about £200,000 by taking people out that are unnecessary and putting jobs with people who are better and maybe aren't ripping me off, uh, which, which is great. So he gets good money. Um, people who do capital allowances, people who do land remediation relief claims, you know, they save me a load of money. I pay them well. Um, so, you know, in the early days, I would be really trying to save money on everything because, you know, reducing your costs in a business are one of the, often one of the simplest ways to, to increase profit. But I've, I've learned the hard way that that is not necessarily the right thing to do. Staff as well, employees, um, you know, I'd be very, very uh, careful about hiring and hiring people who are cheap. Um, but, um, you know, you, you probably heard the old... The old saying, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Um, and it is true. You get a member of staff in who might be cheap, but who is not particularly good. Um, they will work at a third of the capacity of somebody really good. Uh, not only because maybe they don't work as hard or produce as much, but they have less knowledge and they're just not as efficient or as good at the thing you want want to do. And um, so it's not worth using them. Uh, or not worth having them, and then rehire. If you don't look after them, or they're not paid loads, and maybe they want to leave, rehiring can cost you minimum twenty, thirty thousand pounds. It's not just the sort of recruitment cost, but then you're going to have to retrain and you know have a good six, twelve months doing that. Cheap solicitors, uh, bane of my life, chasing them and trying to get them to do things. Uh, a solicitor I've just used on a remortgage. Granted, they've got the file and they've done work on it before, but since the valuation was produced. They're, they're now drawing down and they've taken two and a half weeks um, to, to, to draw down from basically getting the full instruction from the bank, which I just find brilliant and amazing. Um, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm on this one, I'm probably paying them four or five grand. And if I went to the sister I used to use, they maybe charge me 1,500, two grand, something like that. But I'd still be here in three months time. They'd be winding me up. As my sort of relationship manager at the bank said yesterday, I'll be full of anguish um, and I'm just done with it. Um, so find the right people and pay them well. Number eight. As a Cheshire-based building contractor, how would you approach 
approached trying to find an investor with the potential to start a JV. Um, okay, so, I mean, this just, just applies to a, a contractor no matter where you are or anyone looking to do a deal. Um, I think you want to go to networking events. You want to get out there. And obviously, you want to be doing jobs for other investors. Um, and then as you're doing these sort of conversion or building jobs, you want to get the investor um, on the go and, and, and try and sort of show them what you can do, maybe reduce the cost or do it quicker or do them a better job. And then try and persuade them to go into a JV by, you know, by providing value and generating value to their business. Um, you know, if, if they feel like you've got a, a great, you know, eye for design and you're able to sort of add value to the building and add space to the building and generate more income, I think there's a lot of benefit in doing that. Um, so, you know, I would, um, that, that, that's probably what I would do. Lots of networking. I'd go online, go into, you know, Progressive Property Community Facebook group. A lot of benefit in doing that as, as well. Um, you know, contractors have clearly got specialist skills in adding density and, and getting more apartments or rooms or houses out of a site. I think if you can add that value to others, they're going to want a JV with you more. Number nine, what would you expect to pay for a shareholders agreement in a JV? Okay, I have a good solicitor in Peterborough and he, you know, he'll probably charge as a minimum grand £1,500 for shareholders agreement. It is totally dependent on how much time the other party spend um, and how much they pick the shareholders agreement apart and how many times they come back piecemeal um, rather than sending all the changes in one go. Um, you know, it, it, it really can be, you know, sort of 1,000, 1,500 quid. But if it rolls on and on and on, you know, he may charge four, five, six thousand pounds. So I think it's a good idea to get the other party definitely to pay their own solicitor's fees uh, and to make them aware as it's going along how much it is costing them in solicitor's fees um, because uh, they will be more incentivized to get on with it, send, get their solicitor to send all the issues back in one go and not drag the thing out. Uh, the more you drag it out, the more the cost of the shareholders agreement will go up. But it is a really good idea to use a solicitor to do your shareholders agreement or your, your joint venture agreement uh, because you probably won't execute it properly if you do it yourself. Um, there'll be clauses that won't be right. You may not even have the right entities on it uh, and it may not be legally enforceable. So I think um, there is a lot of value in getting a solicitor to do that. Number 10. Manchester has tens of thousands of pipeline residential units. I guess these are new apartments mainly and even more proposed in strategic reform proposals. It also has good commercial take up and pipeline supply. Overall, the city is expanding. Considering all this, what couple of investment strategies do you think will prevail for smaller residential investors? One to 50 units, say. Um, well, we've seen all this before. I remember prior to the last recession, sort of 05, 06, 07, you had Leeds, Manchester, stacks of these apartment buildings going up, far too many apartments, and there was a glut for quite a while. Uh, but that always, you know, over time that goes uh, and it gets sorted, um, you know, the, the supply dries up and it fixes itself. Um, but what I would say is if you feel like that's what's happening in Manchester, just don't buy those new apartments. Go and buy the little terraced houses that are 50, 60, 70 years old. 
they're not building any more of those. Um, the values will be lower. They'll probably be in areas that aren't going to have loads of apartment buildings bought. And the people buying them will be different because they want a Victorian house or an older house versus a new build apartment. So, you know, the house might go to a family. Um, the new build apartment might go to, I don't know, a young couple who want to be in the city centre. They're, they're very different sort of tenant groups. Um, just don't get caught up in it. Go and buy a different type of stock like that. Um, or if you're you know, going to do, I don't know, service accommodation, um, maybe you, you do sort of apartments which are different or older um, than all the sort of new build ones if you're concerned about that. Uh, HMO buildings, well, they're not, it's a different market. They're not going to be, they're not going to be putting HMO blocks up, maybe student blocks, but not for professionals. So I don't think you've got an issue there either. Um, just, just get out of that zone if that's what you're concerned about. Number 11, what is the best way to get the most value from refurb while sticking to a budget? Well, I would get three quotes from three different builders. I would be very specific about the specification. I'd get ideas from all the builders annual letting agent as to where to spend money and where not to spend money. I would go on to LNPG and join up as a landlord. You'll get your materials way cheaper from them than you will by going into a, a store, you know, going into Magnet or whoever, and probably cheaper than your workman can get them for. LNPG is cheap. Um, and then, you know, I, I would sort of, you know, pay the builder really quickly. I would be really clear about what it is you want. I would be, you know, really ordered about everything with the builder. Um, but I would try not to pay them up front, um, you know, just pay for work to complete. Uh, and um, you're probably going to get a good relationship where, you know, a builder wants to keep using you. Some of them will be great. Some of them, their pricing will stay good. Some will get complacent. Uh, lots will get complacent and they'll start pushing the prices up. And then you probably need to move on to Builder 2 for a little bit until Builder A becomes a little bit more compliant uh, and then go back to Builder A. Number 12, what is your favourite donut? Um, I guess that's a serious question. Um, yeah, that Krispy Kreme, the one with the straw, uh, is strawberry and sort of cream in the middle. I think that is awesome. Um, and then the other one, I went to Los Angeles and there was this little sort of Fresh donut, I'm sure it was called Blue Star, and I suspect they'll be rolling that out. They'll be on some private equity rollout, and I bet that comes over here. They're good as well. Number 13, what things are you looking forward to when you become a dad? I am hopefully going to become a father in around four weeks' time. Um, so uh, what am I looking forward to? Um, well, it's my first child, so I don't exactly know what to expect, but I suspect I can get my son into property and I can get him really excited about working out what are good deals and what aren't, what sort of properties he should be buying, um, you know, how to develop them. And, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get him when he's at the earliest opportunity, which I think will be 18, I'm going to get him to, to buy a house. I'll probably lend him the deposit. Well, I'll tell him it's lent, but he might get it in the end. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, it, it'll need a lot of refurb. Uh, and then I'm going to get him to 
rent out at least four of the rooms in the house to generate an income to teach him how to manage tenants, how to get that income stream in. Um, and I think it will focus him on, you know, having this money so he can go and, you know, have have a nice time at 18 and, you know, spend money. I'm, I'm not going to uh, be lavishing him with cash. Um, I'm going to look forward to teaching him all about aviation. I love planes. Um, I fly um, a helicopter. Um, I'm not sure Gemma's going to let me take, me take him up in that initially. She's um, sort of putting a foot down about that at the moment. Um, but I'm going to teach him all about it. I suspect as he gets older, uh, there's going to be uh, some added pressure from him as well as myself on Gemma to, to allow that to happen. Um, um, yeah, and I'm just going to sort of, I'm looking forward to getting to know him, you know, um, and just doing all the stuff that, that a dad does, which I've seen other people do, but I haven't quite experienced it myself, so I don't know exactly how I'll be. But um, watch this space. Hopefully all that's going to change in the next few weeks. Uh, I would like to get some sleep, um, but um, yeah, I'm a bit nervous about that. Number 14. Do you ever get bored of working or fed up? Yes. Um, I get stressed. Um, I... You know, I get fed up and, and just think, oh, everything's not going right. This is really, really difficult. And often I get in the car and I just go home and I do nothing. Often I just go and get in my hot tub. Uh, I just find that a good way just to ignore everything. And often I just go under the water and so I can't hear anything and just don't have to listen to anyone and just sort of a lot of my issues melt away. Um, so, yeah, every now and again. And if I get a good night's sleep, then uh, I come into the office, feel a lot better. Uh, and then I start to work through my issues methodically and often the day looks better. Um, I do sometimes, you know, think, you know, how much property is enough property and how, how long do I want to go on doing this? Um, I had this conversation with Rob two or three days ago because sort of once we're all built out, um, you know, our, our portfolio value is, you know, it's a pretty it's going to be a pretty good number. Um, and we've got interest in other stuff, you know, other people's sort of properties. And of course, we've, we're managing a lot in the in, in progressive lets as well. Um, but, you know, I, I, I often go through those periods where I sort of back off buying for a little bit. Uh, but I just can't help but get back involved again. Um, and I'll start tinkering and looking at stuff and sort of getting excited and trying to bid something a bit down. So just don't think I'm ever going to stop doing this. Um, it can be a little bit sadistic in a way. Um, I know, you know, Rob's had sort of, he, whilst he's still been here and he's been working, he's been in the office less sort of the last, I don't know, couple of years. Obviously, he's got kids now. Um, and I've noticed he's sort of come back in again um, and he's, he's working really hard. He's doing really long days again now since Christmas. Um, and it's almost like you, you, you just can't, you can have a bit of a break, but um, we, we all seem to put ourselves back into the, this, this position in a slightly sadistic way where, um, you know, we have all this pressure again and, and, and seem to crave it. And, and I just seem to want to go and buy a load more buildings and put myself under a load more pressure, which I don't really need to do anymore, but um, I just can't stop doing it. So I don't think it's ever going to end. Uh, but I just have better ways of, or should have better ways of, 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 of sort of managing uh, my buying and managing the pressure and, you know, all the challenges.
Question 15. What was the deal that made you feel rich? Well, I'm not sure I even feel, I'm not sure I feel rich now. Um, and I don't really know what rich is. Rich for me is a moving target. And, you know, I used to think, oh, when I get to this level of income or that many properties, I'll feel rich and I've done it. But it's a bit of a moving feast. Um, I've just found when I've always got to those levels, uh, I've just found somebody else who's got a bigger portfolio or making more money. And often I just feel a bit, you know, feel a bit like, you know, surely we could be doing a bit better than we are. Uh, look at what they're doing or, or you know, um, really should only compete with yourself. But um, yeah, it, it, I I don't feel rich uh, and um, I don't know if I ever will. I don't know. Um, you know, it, 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 I'm always sort of driving for more. Um, so, yeah. And because it's gradual, because you over time build, you know, build your wealth and, and sort of generate more income and all that sort of stuff. It's incremental um, and you don't notice it as much um, or I don't. Um, I put it on a spreadsheet now, actually, to keep track. Um, and that they're probably the moments where you're a bit more like, hmm, yeah, I'm getting there or, you know, this is getting closer, you know, or last year was really worth it. Um, you know, that, that's what I get from sort of those reviews. Um, but yeah, never really feel rich. 16. What's the best banking structure for separate companies? Separate or amalgamated and do the accounting separate? I'm thinking of administrative burden and pr pr uh, proving income in a tidy way. So, um, if you're doing big developments, it is a good idea to start SPVs. So you start an individual company for each development. Um, that shields you uh, and the rest of your portfolio from liability and risk, uh, which can be a really good idea. Um, I generally, if we're keeping stock, we're building and we're keeping stock or converting, often I do tend to put it into one entity. Uh, I don't like having loads of limited companies um, because of the administrative burden, the amount of forms I have to fill out or the accountancy fees. Um, you know, so I try and keep it to a minimum. But if I'm doing bigger projects and I, I feel there's, you know, a lot of risk, I know something might happen, someone might sue me, something like that. I, I do often put them in an individual limited company. But my um, my goal over the long term is 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 usually to try and you know get 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 them together. Um, depending on the lender you're going to use, you 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 know lots of lenders will make you take a personal guarantee, so your liability to them is the same. Um, some lenders, Lloyd's, Barclays, RBS, often they'll take a partial guarantee, personal guarantee, or no guarantee, uh, especially at sort of 65 percent loan to value. So obviously there is benefit then in using SPVs because the development is or the investment is completely shielded. Remember, however, though, the buck always stops with you. You know, maybe on that deal, um, you know, the, the, the bank or whoever's trying to get money from you doesn't get the money. But, um, you know, there'll be a footprint at company's house. There'll be creditors sitting there who have not been paid. Um, next time you try and get a loan from that bank, they'll probably tell you to go elsewhere. Um, other banks will be able to see that um, and everyone else will be able to see that. So 
you know, if you if you go through companies' house and you look at all the companies I've been involved with, um, you know, all the companies that I've run, yeah, I've dissolved some because um, you know the, the the thing I was trying didn't work, or you know, maybe I've moved properties into a, another entity, so I haven't need that company anymore, or whatever. So I have shut companies down. But if you look at that that sort of history and that footprint. Every single one of them was shut down with no creditors and no money owing. Um, you won't find one where that has been the case, where where I've shut, uh, you know, been a director and shareholder and, and 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 shut down a company with with creditors. So when a bank looks at that um, that history, um, they never find any bad credit or any reason not to give me the loan at the best rate. Uh, and I think there's a lot of value in that. I've seen people go bust, go bankrupt. Um, you know, not want to do a development and send an LLP, you know, into administration or, or receivership or, you know, property goes to auction, all that sort of stuff. Um, people get to know about that stuff um, and um, they'll be more wary about doing a deal with you next time. So um, prepare for the worst. You know, you may get a huge recession, you know, and it, it, it's sensible to tr try and protect yourself. Uh, but but absolutely do your damnest to stop it happening. Question 17. Are there any risks in, in buying all your buy-to-lets in one company? I think that was dealt with in the, the last question. Yes, there are risks, um, i.e. lenders demanding funds back. Yeah. What is the maximum that you could buy under one limited company? So um, there is no maximum that you can buy under one limited company. Lenders can demand funds back if you breach their covenants, you know, and, and lots of lenders will say, well, if the loan to value drops above or goes above 60% or the rent stress goes above or goes below 150%, um, then we can demand the money back. Now, in times of recession, when the property values drop, you could eat, that could easily happen. Your property portfolio drops 25%. Lenders can come back to you for the money. Often, if you're paying the mortgage, and you behave and you've not done anything wrong, as long as the lender's not in trouble, they probably won't force that position. What happened in the last recession was there were lots of lenders that got into trouble themselves and then they sent very harsh valuers out as a good excuse to demand the money back from you. Um, if all your buy-to-lets are in one company, well, clearly the buy-to-lets that are charged to that lender um, and, you know, the fact that that lender has a debenture over that limited company will affect it. Um, so, yes, it probably is better to try and split them around um, somewhat um, to, to protect yourself. Clearly, if you've got two lenders lending to a limited company um, and, you know, the... the it can, yeah, it comes time for the legal process for that to happen. They will also want a debenture and you need to get the two lenders often to agree to take an equally ranking debenture, which allows them to have, um, you know, a, a call over the company's other assets. Um, so therein does lie a risk if you've got multiple lenders with it within one company. Number 18, if I buy investment properties as a limited company as opposed to personally, will this affect my personal borrowing capacity on a mortgage? For example, I know if I have personal buy-to-let mortgages in the background, this will affect my personal borrowing capacity for residential mortgage if I wanted to move house myself. However, if the buy-to-let mortgages are in limited companies, does this mean they'll have no impact on my personal mortgage borrowing? 
really want to get started on buy to let purchase, but I may also want to move personally in around five years. So don't want to shoot myself in the foot. Thanks for any advice, help. Okay, so it can have a bearing, but it will definitely have less bearing if they are in a limited company and away from you versus if they're in your own name. Um, I've done a couple of personal mortgages uh, in the last sort of five, six years on two different, you know, homes that I live in. Um, and they've wanted to see the whole portfolio, but, you know, it's been, they've been relatively relaxed around it, um, especially as they are in limited companies. They often want to see the rent, make sure they work, see what is in the background. But because they're not in my own name, um, I think it's made it a lot easier. That isn't to say that if you've got a load of properties that are very highly leveraged in a limited company, not cash flowing, they won't take that into account because they will. They will want to see what you know other properties you've got in the background. Um, but it is, I'd say, a lot less of an issue if, if the properties are in a limited company or an LLP uh, and away from you. And critically, they don't usually show up on your credit file. Um, the properties that I have in limited companies do not show, the mortgages don't show up on my credit file. Um, only the mortgages I have on buy-to-lets um, in my own name, you know, they're the ones that show up on the credit file and the lender tends to get more bothered about them. Um, just seems to be the way it is. Question 19, before JVing and refinancing existing properties, how did you find purchase of additional properties? Uh, before JVing and refinancing existing properties, how did you find? Oh, did you fund the purchase? Okay, so um, clearly, you know, JVing um, and you know, you know, I had a little bit of a pot, not not a huge pot, um, which I started with, um, and used that to roll over. Obviously, we have got a training business; we do make money out of that, and that does throw some cash off. Um, you know, to allow us to, to buy properties. But, you know, sort of in the early days, obviously Rob didn't have any money. So he JV'd with me and I used my money to finance the purchases with Rob. Um, and, you know, you could do the same thing. You could find someone who's got cash, who's got deposits uh, and get that rolling with them. Um, so I think there's a hell of a lot of value in doing that. 20, best first commercial project for experienced vanilla Buy to let landlords with up to 150k cash funds. Um, yes, I'd do, I think I'd probably do a high-end HMO. I'd probably convert it. I'd maybe do one or two cluster flats. Uh, I'd get really high yield. If you're buying sort of Midlands and North, you'd probably get 15%. I'd put all on suites in. Um, 150k cash will probably let you with some development finance. Um, you know, maybe do six rooms or, or 12 rooms, something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, you'll have a nice little development there, which will throw off a lot of income. That's what I would probably do. Number 21. What do you think the longevity of deals sourcing packaging is as a business model? Well, um, I don't think there's any sort of time limit on it. I think, you know, you can do it. You need to be registered with a property ombudsman to do it. You act like an estate agent. Um, I think you need to get experienced in it. I think you need to get good at it. You need to find genuine deals. You need to find ways of securing them and securing the investor's commitment uh, with some funds, maybe a deposit. Um, and I think you need to sort of watch the best and, and get really good at it. Um, I've done it a bit in the past. I don't do it so much these days because honestly, the really the best deals that I find, I just want to buy them myself. 
I just want to buy them myself. I want to put them in the portfolio and I want to get the income from them. Um, so, but, you know, certainly in the earlier days, uh, we got income from sourcing deals for people and that helped us grow our portfolio. So, you you know, you do it when you haven't got any choice and it helps you grow your portfolio and grow your sort of business. So, um, you know, I uh, what's right for me now or what was right for me then isn't necessarily right for you in your circumstance now. 22 are single lets in semi-decent areas with gross yield of 10% actually a better bet than HMOs over time due to fewer overheads, hassle and void periods. That is very much dependent on where you are, what type of HMOs or single lets you're doing. Um, you know, I, I do both. Um, I like, you know, doing sort of high-end HMOs in the centre of our city because they the voids I don't find are too much of an issue. Um, and, you know, as long as they're nice and they're nice spec, I can keep the voids down. I've had HMOs in other areas with LHA and, and you know, not great tenants, and it was a bloody nightmare. The refurb costs, the voids, you know, fights, the police putting doors in, you know, prostitution, drugs, all that made it a complete nightmare. Um, and I wouldn't do it for all the tea in China. So I think it depends what, what exactly your model is. Uh, and where you're doing it. But yeah, single lets are great and you'll probably end up with a, a bigger capital base by rolling your money over through single lets and more cash flow through doing HMOs. So if you can make the two together, you know, the single lets will make you very rich in the long term because obviously you're going to get capital growth and you'll get capital growth on the HMOs. But if you've got a couple of HMOs and they're worth 300 grand versus, you know, 10 single lets that are worth 1.1 million, the single lets are going to create a lot more equity in the long run for you. Question 23. What do you think of the proposed tax changes that will mean that landlords will have to submit figures to HMRC five times per annum? Personally, I think it's crazy. Well, yes, I tend to agree with you. Uh, making tax digital, as this is known, uh, looks to me like um, HMRC um, sort of getting more frequent returns from you so they can see uh, a more up-to-date snapshot of what you're doing. I suspect they believe it It will generate more tax for them. That's probably the incentive for doing it. Um, it, it will, you know, if, if you don't do management accounts and you don't know how your business is running, it will force you to, to do those more frequently and you'll see exactly how your business is performing, you know, on a more up-to-date basis, which might be good. Um but yeah, it's um, it's just more administrative burden, isn't it? Um, you know, I think we've got 11 account staff upstairs. Uh, all they're doing all day is basically working for HMRC and we pay them because uh, all they're doing is um, putting loads and loads of numbers on spreadsheets or, or into Sage uh, to tell HMRC how much VAT we need to pay them, how much corporation tax, um, you know, and, and, you know, all the other sort of taxes that we pay, payroll, you know, all the taxes that the employees pay, the income tax and the national insurance. Um, and, and I suppose this is more, more of the same. I, I don't know. We haven't actually seen the reality of it. I, I think there's some talk that it will reduce that burden because it will be more digital. Um, but um, don't hold your breath. Question 24. Final question. 
What are your predictions for the UK economy and property confidence in the next few years, given the slowdown in the US and Chinese economies? Well, I think I dealt with that um, in the early part of this this podcast. Um, Difficulties faced in Europe and, of course, Brexit. Does the fact that Dyson are leaving the UK, foreign car manufacturers moving out of the city, bigwigs shifting more to Europe bother you? Well, it's not a good thing, is it? Um, Dyson, I would have thought, has gone to Singapore primarily because of tax. Clearly, he said that it's because he's making lots of cars or is going to make lots of electric cars for the Asian market, which may also be true. But wouldn't you want to operate out of Singapore with, with a much lower corporate tax rate? Um, and, um, you know, they can probably shelter money over there. Um, yes, Brexit is blatantly all the uncertainty around it is, is not a good thing. It's not a good thing for business. Um, these car factories closing down, uh, it's not just because of Brexit. It clearly is because, um, you know, their numbers have reduced significantly in terms of their sales, you know, and, and diesel's coming to an end. Um, so there are a lot of factors there, but Brexit doesn't help, does it? It's just another nail in the coffin. Um, and, and the uncertainty that that creates stops businesses from, from investing and probably makes the decision to go home or, or go somewhere else with more stability easier. Um, you know, do I do I think that Brexit is going to create a major issue for property investors in the long term? No. Uh, will we get through all this stuff? Absolutely. Um, you know, is the UK economy uh, more effective, efficient and grow at a higher rate than the rest of Europe? Absolutely. You know, I think it's over the last 10 years we've grown in, in the 40 something percent range, where, whereas a lot of Europe probably dragged down by southern Europe. Um, has grown in the sort of 20% range. Clearly, the northern European countries like Germany, you know, Scandinavia, the Netherlands um, are, um, you know, a lot a lot more productive um, and, um, you know, our, our economic growth rates are a lot higher, unemployment rates are higher, wage growth and, and wage levels are higher. Um, that's not going away. You know, yeah, some city bigwigs leave London uh, Unilever decides to go and set up, I don't know, I think it was in Holland, um, you know, maybe some banks decide to go and um, set up in Europe because they need to stay in the EU um, for passporting reasons or because they're dealing with other parts of the world that, that are doing business through the EU. That absolutely is the case, you know, and, and, and I'm sure it has, it's harmed London in some way, but you have to remember that, you know, London wasn't just built because of the EU. Um, London, you know, has, has evolved as this major, major international finance centre, uh, which probably largely evolved, you know, through the, the days of the empire, you know, the colonies, you know, all, all of this major trading, which we did all around the world, all these, you know, the, the government has got all these offshore tax jurisdictions, which basically we set up the Cayman Islands, uh, you know, the Bahamas, uh, sorry, Bermuda, um, you know, y- 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 there are a whole load of these different um, jurisdictions around the world which exist um, b- because in many ways their business is, is filtered through London and that, that generates a lot of business for London. The, these sort of offshore jurisdictions are under the control of Whitehall in London. They're like county councils. Um, so inevitably, they're going to be doing their business through London. You know, all those staff, all those employees, all those companies, all those linkages, they're, 
they're built up over many hundreds of years. They're not suddenly going to go away. Um, they're, they're sort of interlinked and knit together. So, um, you know, of course, in, in the medium to long term, we'll all be absolutely fine. Um, but uh, you've just got to get through this sort of period of, of reduced certainty and reduced growth um, and, um, and, then, and then crack on. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Hope you found it of value. It's been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. Mm-hmm.